our series on Through the Bible, book by book. And we've come now to the last of the major prophets and what some call the first of the minor prophets, the book of Daniel. I think almost everyone looks at the book of Daniel with some sense of, uh, of wonder and uh, anticipation because this is usually regarded as a prophetic book. That is, it foretells the future. And this is true. The book of Daniel, taken with the book of Revelation, is a tremendous unfolding of future events as God has ordained them in the program of history. This book by no means has been fulfilled as yet, uh, just as the book of Revelation by no means has been fulfilled. And these two books, one from the Old and one from the New Testament, uh, agree together in a most remarkable symmetry and harmony. The book of Revelation explains the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel lays the basis for the book of Revelation. And if you'd like to know what God's program is for the future, it's essential that you know and understand this book of Daniel. But the knowledge of the future is a very dangerous thing. Imagine what would happen if... Uh, if all of us, or if any of us, possess the ability to know what's going to happen in the days ahead. Think what an advantage that would give you in the stock market, and uh, also what it would do in, uh, in uh, buying insurance and some other very practical matters of life. But God, by and large, does not unfold the future to us, certainly not in detail, and certainly not the individual's future. What he does show us in the prophetic scriptures is the general trend of events and where they will all end. And anyone who investigates this area thoughtfully and carefully and scripturally will discover great and helpful things about what is happening in our world today. For everything that's happening today is working about God's purposes on earth. And they will all end exactly as God has foretold they will end. And we can see what is happening then today if we know what the prophetic program is. But God has taken two precautions about this matter of unveiling the future. First, he has clothed these prophetic passages in symbolic language. He's giving, given them to us in figurative form. And that's why in these prophetic books, you have the appearance of unusual things, uh, strange beasts with uh, many different heads and horns sticking out here and there, and uh, images of all kinds with uh, divisions among them and uh, indescribable uh, visions that are given. You have the same thing in the book of Revelation, these strange, uh, uh, many uh, uh Beasts made up of many divisions and, uh, and uh, separations and combining all kinds of characteristics together. And these have always been a puzzle to people. You can't just sit down with the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation and read it through and understand it like you would read through a book, a, a novel or a, or a book, uh, any other normal book. You have to study and it takes the whole of the Bible to interpret these symbols in the books of Daniel and Revelation. This is one of the 
uh, locks that God has provided to keep prying minds from uh, getting into these books without an adequate background in Scripture. You just can't take it and understand what it is without knowing a great deal of the rest of the Bible, because these these symbolic things are signs that God has erected. Now, a sign is given to us that we might understand a fact that is otherwise hidden. And uh, God's program for the future is otherwise hidden to us until we spend time understanding the signs. And this book is full of signs. Then a second uh, uh, precaution God has taken in this is uh, in especially here in the book of Revelation, is that he doesn't introduce the prophetic section first, but he brings us in six chapters into an understanding of a of the moral character that God requires before the prophetic program begins to make sense. In other words, you can't understand <clears throat> the last section of this book unless you have have lived through and understood what is involved in the first six chapters of Daniel. And here we have those interesting stories that Daniel and his friends went through involving the fiery furnace and the lion's den and uh, these familiar stories from the Old Testament about uh, their trials. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, there's no way of understanding what the prophetic program means unless you grasp the moral lessons of the first part of this book. And there's no way of cheating on this. You can't just read it through and uh, then turn to the prophetic program and hope to understand it. You'll find that you don't get anything out of it. You really have to get down in this and uh, and analyze it and think it through and begin to walk on this basis and experience it before that prophetic program comes to life. That's the glory of God's kind of book. You just don't understand it with the intellect alone. You can you can sit down with the prophetic outlines of Daniel and of Revelation and draw wonderful charts, fearfully and wonderfully made, and spend your time explaining to people what all these things mean and how God's program is going to work out and have it all analyzed down to a gnat's eyebrow, but... Uh, uh, you'll discover that it is it will result in barrenness in your own life and uh, emptiness and uh, and poverty of spirit unless you have incorporated these lessons of the first part of the book. Therefore, <coughs> God has structured this book <coughs> excuse me that way. Now, the Lord Jesus himself points this out in his great... Uh, in his great message on the uh, on the uh, uh, Olivet Discourse, he was asked by his disciples to name the sign of his coming. What would be the sign, the, the symbol of his return to earth? And you remember Jesus said, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then he says, is the time to flee to the mountains and get out of the city of Jerusalem because things are happening there that will be of, of tremendous uh, uh, have tremendous effect upon the people living in that area. Then is the time to 
to flee the city, for the great tribulation will then come. Now, he added in parentheses these words when he said, When you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, he added these words, Let him that readeth understand. Let him that readeth understand. That is, you don't just read through Daniel uh, superficially. You have to think through. You have to give yourself to thought on this and understand what he's talking about before you'll be able to recognize the abomination of desolation when it comes. And this is why the Lord went on to say that the world, in its superficial approach to truth, will not understand this, and that's why when they say peace and safety and cry peace, peace, there will be no peace. For sudden destruction, he says, shall come upon them, and they will be swept away just as the people of Noah's day were when the flood came. Now, all this is a warning, then, you see, to take the book of Daniel seriously and to understand uh, the structure of the book as we come into it. This book divides into two sections. Uh, very simple. I've already suggested them to you. The first six chapters are a history of the prophet himself, Daniel and his friends, as they're in the land of Babylon, the men of faith in a hostile world. And let me tell you, there is no section of Scripture more helpful to somebody who has to live as a Christian in difficult surroundings than these first six chapters of Daniel. If you're working in a company surrounded with a godless crowd who are uh, every moment taking the name of God in vain and, and reacting and uh, showing uh, uh, agreement with the, with the ideas and attitudes of, world, of, of the world in its ways, and uh, who make fun of the things of God, and who have uh, seemingly little, uh, little interest in what God says to uh, mankind, then I suggest you read carefully the book of Daniel, the first six chapters. If you're a teenager living in a school and going to school, where you're surrounded constantly by those who have seemingly no interest in what God is like and the things of God, then read these first six chapters of Daniel. For these, these men, Daniel and his friends, were teenagers when they were first taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and taken to the land of Babylon. And as they began their career of faith, they did so with all the lack of uh, understanding of life and all the insecurity of a teenager in a hostile environment. And the book records in these first six chapters the pressures that they underwent as they stood for their faith in the midst of these difficult surroundings. In chapter 1, you remember, you have the story of them as, as young men confronted with the necessity of changing their diet. Now, ordinarily, there's nothing wrong with that. A few of us could stand that uh, frequently, perhaps. But these young men had been already told by God what they were not to eat. And the very things that they were told not to eat were the things that were required eating as they were found as prisoners in the palace of the king of Babylon. And what were they to do? This, this king was the most... Uh, the most powerful tyrant who has ever lived on earth. 
The Bible itself records that, uh, of this king, King Nebuchadnezzar, that there was no king equal to him in authority that had ever lived before him or ever would live after him. He had no restraints whatsoever upon what he desired to do. His word was absolute law. He could take any man's life at any time. And later on in his kingdom, he did. He took the life of uh, of the king of Judah standing before him and caused him to be taken out and his eyes put out. And uh, another man was burned to death over a slow fire. And uh, this king was an expert in torture. And these young teenagers facing this test knew that they either had to comply with the king's request or forfeit their lives. And what did they do? Well, they knew, they felt all the pressure of this. And they heard all the familiar arguments that any person hears today to try to get you to, to give up acting on the basis of faith. They heard, they knew the argument. I'm sure it was given to them in, in its current form in those days. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. Everybody's doing this. What's the difference what you eat? What's the difference if you agree, if you have a ham sandwich with these Babylonians? What's the difference? Uh, where they were prisoners in a country far away from home. Their own country was laid waste. Who'd know any different? And they felt the pressure of that. But these young men stood fast, and God honored them. God gave them the grace to stand in the midst of that kind of pressure. And as a result, they were exalted in the kingdom and given positions of, of authority and superiority throughout that kingdom. And this story of repeated pressure goes right on through this book. In chapter 2, you see some of the reason for this kind of testing of these particular young men. It comes out more clearly. For in that chapter, we have the story of the great dream vision of King Nebuchadnezzar. He had a dream one night, and he dreamed of a great image. And that image was uh, of a man with a strange uh, body, a head of gold and uh, shoulders of silver and uh, a middle section of brass and legs of iron with clay and iron mingled in the feet. But he forgot his dream. And he called in the wise men and he asked them to tell him not only the interpretation, but the dream as well. And it's often, I've often wondered if this wasn't the beginning of that popular song, You Tell Me Your Dream and I'll Tell You Mine. Because the, uh, the uh, astrologers and the soothsayers and the sorcerers of Babylon were totally unable to come up with anything. Obviously not. If they couldn't, uh, if the king couldn't tell them the dream, then they couldn't dream up an interpretation. And so their lives were forfeit. And in the midst of it, Daniel was placed again. God's man placed in a position of, of pressure and threatened with his life if he did not conform. But again, God's man comes through, as God's man always does when he's willing to stand and obey God despite the pressures. That's the whole lesson of this book, that God overrules in the affairs of men, that life is never explained by the mere superficial pressures that you feel. That the outcome that it, that looks to be logically, uh, inevitable as you face a situation is not necessarily the outcome that will happen if you're trusting in the invisible God who rules in the affairs of men. That's all, that's the great lesson of this book. All the way through. 
You find it expressed by Daniel most beautifully in his prayer to God in chapter 2, where he says, verse 20, Daniel said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He gives wisdom to the, he removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and mysterious things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. And if you're in touch with a God like that, you don't need to worry what the crowd around you is doing. For that God is able to carry you through and to work the situation out no matter how impossible it looks. And that's exactly the story of Daniel, repeated five different times through these first six chapters. It was the privilege of Daniel and his friends to force the greatest powers of earth in his day to recognize the overall government of God. And do you know that's exactly the position that every believer is placed in today? The uh, the world lives with the with the conception that that there is no God, or that if He does exist, He has no real power. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't change history. He doesn't affect human lives. He doesn't enter into situations and make any difference. He's a great old man in the sky off there somewhere who doesn't really affect anything that happens down here. That's the philosophy of the world. But every believer is put in a position by which if they walked faithfully, if they obey what God says, despite the, the pressures that are put upon them, are given the privilege of opening the eyes of men to the fact that God exists, that he's not dead, that he's at work in the affairs of men, and that he's a power to be reckoned with. And this is what Daniel and his friends did over and over through this book. In chapter 3, you have the story of the fiery furnace and how they were, had, were, were commanded to bow down before this image which Nebuchadnezzar erected in his pride, thinking that the dream image that he had, because he was told that he represented that head of gold, that he was the great king of earth, and in pride he lifted himself up and caused an image to be erected on the plain. A great big image, as tall as some of these rockets we've been shooting up to the sky. And the whole crowd was uh, gathered on the plain, and these three young men particularly with them. And all were ordered to bow down and worship the image. And in order to encourage them, a great furnace was built at the other end of the plain, and heated seven times hotter than it had ever been heated before. And they were told that if they didn't bow down, that's where they'd end. Now, that's a lot of pressure, isn't it, for young people to bear. And, the, and they had some additional inducements as well. They had a band, and what a band. The instruments are given to us, and we don't even recognize the name of all of them. The one that uh, fascinates me is the sackbut, which I'm told is, is really the bagpipe. And when the band played, the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and every other kind of music, Everybody fell down and worshipped, all except three young men. And when they were brought before Nebuchadnezzar, he ordered them to fall down. And they said these wonderful words, O Nebuchadnezzar, 
We have no need to answer you in this matter. That is, they were not being impertinent. They meant by that, we don't need to take any time to think over our answer. We don't need to take any counsel. We know what to say. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, ah, those are words of faith. But if not, our God is able to. But we don't know the mind of God. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. His ways are different than ours. It may be that he won't do it. But even if he doesn't, we will be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Now, there are young men who have learned that there are things more important than life, that it's better to be dead and obedient to God than alive and disobedient to him, that it's far more profitable to the, to the individual concerned to walk with God at the cost of life itself than to be disobedient to what God has said. And God will never be in any man's debt. He greatly honored these young men. And as a result of that, they came out of the furnace without even the smell of fire upon them. You know the record. What an amazing story that is. Then in chapter 4, you have the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. Did you know that? Did you know that this whole chapter is the testimony of the greatest king that ever lived, the greatest tyrant that ever ruled? It's his story of how God broke the pride of his heart, humiliated him, humbled him, allowed him to, to uh, exercise his pride to the fullest degree until it resulted in what always results when men live in pride, madness. And he went out and ate grass in the field. For seven years, his throne was preserved, but he acted like an animal. Because this is what always happens to man when he chooses to walk out of fellowship with a living God. He becomes animal-like, beastly, brutified. And in symbolic representation of that, King Nebuchadnezzar became like an animal. And then he tells how his... Reason was restored to him by the grace of God. And his closing word of this chapter is a great testimony of the faith of this king, how God humbled him and brought him back. And he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to abase. And who brought him to this place? Humanly speaking, it was Daniel and his friend. Four young men were used of God to win the heart of the greatest king of the greatest empire the world has yet seen. Now look at chapter 5. There you have the story of the handwriting on the wall, the familiar story of Belshazzar. And uh, you only need to read the account to note the luxury and the licentiousness and the lust of that kingdom. A degenerated deteriorated kingdom, but in the midst of it, Daniel, having lived through three empires, is still prime minister, and God uses him to interpret this strange figure, that hand that appeared and wrote upon the wall, the judgment of God upon that licentious king. Again, 
bearing out the thesis of this book, that God is at work in the affairs of men. And any man who sees beyond the unseen, the, the things that are seen to the unseen, and acts accordingly, will find that God is with him, supporting him and strengthening him all along the way, and bringing him out to the praise of his glory. Chapter 6, The Lion's Den. The same story again, told in another way. Daniel, this time, uh, Darius this time, threw him into the lion's den. But God sent his angel, and he shut the lion's mouth, and Daniel was brought out again, delivered by the hand of God. Now, beginning with verse chapter 12, uh, 7, you have the prophetic section. And I'm not going to spend time with this at all. It would be far too... Uh, uh, lengthy a section to go into into any great length, but this is one of the great prophetic sections of Scripture. Chapter 7 gives us the vision of the four beasts, and it's interesting that these four beasts cover the same period of time as the four divisions of the gold of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had seen in chapter 2. There was the head of gold, symbolizing the Babylonian kingdom, the shoulders of media Persia, of silver, the, uh, the uh, trunk of uh, brass, which symbolized the Grecian Empire, and then the two legs of iron, the two divisions of the Roman Empire, terminating at last in a broken kingdom, still characterized by iron, but also by clay mingled together. This is one of the great prophetic passages of all time because it outlines history from Daniel's day clear on past our own day to the end of time and the return of Jesus Christ. Or as the prophet watched, he saw a stone cut out without hands, strike the image on its feet and utterly demolish it, and then grow to be a great mountain to fill the earth, uh, clearly a picture of the kingdom of God and the return of Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 7, the four beasts rec uh, represent the same kingdoms, but from God's point of view. They're nothing but beasts, growling and fighting and quarreling together. Dr. Schofield, I think, points out that all of the uh, symbols of modern nations are, are representations of birds or beasts of prey. Our own nation is symbolized by an eagle, a bird of prey. The British uh, Empire by a lion. The Russian by a bear. And it's these uh, nations that the prophet sees struggling together in chapter 7, culminating in, a, in a, uh, the reign of a single individual in power over this whole of the Western world. Then in chapter 8, you see the westward moving of history. The ram and the he-goat come together. And uh, this is a picture, as we're told here, of uh, uh, the conquest of Alexander the Great and the rise of the kingdom of the, of, the, of the Seleucides in Syria, as opposed to the Ptolemies in Egypt. And these two families occupy the center of history for centuries after that, the struggle between Syria and Egypt with little Israel caught in the middle, and the battle rages back and forth so that Israel today is the most fought-over country in all of history. More battles have occurred in the land of Israel than in any other spot on the face of the earth. And it's in that very same area where the last great battle, the Battle of Armageddon, is yet to be fought. 
And then in chapter 9, you have Daniel's prayer in the midst of this. And uh, it's a great prayer, a wonderful prayer, as this man pours his heart out to God. And the answer to his prayer is, is the last section of the chapter, one of the most remarkable sections in all the Bible, prophetically. The great vision of the 70 weeks, beginning with verse 24 through to the end of the chapter, in just uh, three or four verses, you have one of the, the greatest prophecies in all the Bible. The prophecy of the 70 weeks. This is the timetable of prophecy. It concerns the nation Israel. And it gives to us uh, the principle of what is called the great parenthesis. The fact that God has interrupted the program for Israel and inserted this present age in which we live between the comings of the Lord Jesus. From between the first coming and the second coming. This indeterminate period, which has now stretched out for over 1,900 years, comes in between the 69th week of years and the 70th week of this prophecy. The 70th week, a week of seven years, is yet to be fulfilled for Israel. And as you read this, you see that this is the time that the book of Revelation and other prophetic passages calls the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. It lies ahead. It's been broken off from the other 70 and is yet unfulfilled. Then in chapter 10, you have the things unseen behind the scene. Another great revelation of God's sovereign government in the affairs of men and the explanation behind the events of history. What happens? Uh, what, what, what causes the things that happen today to be happening? Well, there are unseen forces at work, and Daniel saw them, and these were clearly revealed to him. Then chapter 11 is one of the most remarkable chapters in the Bible from a quite different standpoint than anything else. This is the most, this is the record of fulfilled prophecy for the most part, in detail. This covers the account uh, beyond Daniel's day of the struggles between the king of Syria and the king of Egypt. And it is prophetically, uh, it is historically fulfilled. And you can take this, as it has been done, and trace these historic events. And uh, they're given in great detail here. And they cover two or three hundred years of history. And as you trace them through, you can see how exactly what was said here has worked out in the pattern of history. It includes among them such outstanding individuals as Cleopatra, who appears in this chapter and is prophetically foretold. Until you come to the 36th verse. And in the 36th verse of the 11th chapter, a, a very noteworthy break occurs. It is introduced by the 35th verse, which says, to Daniel, some of those who are wise shall fall to refine and to cleanse them and to make them white until the time of the end. For it is yet for the time appointed. And beginning with verse 36, you'll find a passage that deals with that 70th week of Daniel, yet unfulfilled. The time of the end, the last days, the ultimate arrangement of the kingdoms of earth in the time just before the return of Jesus Christ. And this is a very remarkable passage, predicting an invasion of the land of Palestine and a counter-invasion from the south, from Egypt, 
and then the meeting of two great armies in the land of Israel, and the ultimate destruction of those armies there on the mountains of Israel. This is also very clearly described in the 38th and 39th chapters of Ezekiel, and the uh, the second chapter of Joel. You'll find other prophetic passages to this. And at last, these are uh, are, uh, destroyed, and the beginning of chapter 12 introduces a uh, the greatest event of history yet unfulfilled, the coming again of Jesus Christ. It isn't mentioned as such here, but it's at that time, Daniel says, Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, Israel, shall stand up, and then shall be a time of trouble, such as there has never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And then this is followed by a resurrection. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And the final judgment of God. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And then Daniel is given a sign of when this will occur. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Many Bible scholars take that as an indication that as we near that time, uh, this will, there will be this rapid increase in transportation and of knowledge, of human knowledge, which would mark the days in which we live. Now, one other thing about this last book and uh, this last chapter, and then we're through. Daniel is shown, uh, he asked certain questions of the angel who, uh, who unfolded this to him. And then he is given to understand two great principles which are at work in human life. You and I often hear people discussing what's happening in the world. And uh, newspaper commentators and others are constantly pouring into our ears reports on on terrible things that are happening in our earth. And people often say, what's happening? Uh, Is the world getting worse and worse, or is it getting better and better? On one hand, you'll hear people describe things happening in such a way as as that you're bound to say, well, the world is getting worse and worse. And then someone turns around and says, no, it isn't. Look at this and this and this. And they say, I believe the world's getting better. We're moving, we're progressing. Now, the book of Daniel makes very clear that we never will understand God's word and God's work until we believe both of those principles. For in the 10th verse of chapter 12, Daniel was told, Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. That's good, getting better. But the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. That's evil getting worse. But those that are wise shall understand. Jesus said that the good seed has been sowed in the earth, but an enemy has come and sowed tares among the wheat. Let both grow together, he says, until the harvest. And this is certainly true, I think, in history. Today, evil is worse than it's ever been. It's more subtle, more devilish, more satanic, 
more difficult to detect than it's ever been in human history before. But good is better than it's ever been before. Uh, good is more powerful. Its effect in human society uh, in, uh, in relationship to the evil around it is far greater than it's ever been before. And these two things, these two principles are at work in human society. And the ultimate end must be that neither shall overpower the other. Good is not going to become so triumphant that evil finally disappears, as they once thought at the turn of the century. Nor is evil going to be so overpowerful uh, over and transcending that, e that good finally disappears. But both are going to come into a headlong conflict. And the Bible everywhere records that at that precise moment in history is when God intervenes in human affairs again. In the ultimate clash of these two great principles that work in human society. But Daniel is told, blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. Go your way till the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. And this is the theme then of the book of Daniel. Let me close with these words. I think they're prophetic words from Helmut Thielecki, the professor, rector of Hamburg University in Germany. He says, we men may do what we will. Nebuchadnezzar may come, and Genghis Khan, and Mao Zedong, but none of them can break God's plans, but rather must fulfill them even against their will. Even though what we hear now is the dark minor tone, what is being played is still God's symphony, and it will be played out to the end. The individual tones may think that they are who knows what. They may want to assert themselves and swing out on their own, and yet they have all been composed into a score of which God alone is in command, and in which everything, when it is heard from heaven's vantage point, has its place in God's succession of tones that end in his final chord. The rich of this world are in the process of going, but the kingdom of God is in the process of coming. Don't ever think that anybody will ever be able to break away from serving him, though he renounces God ten times over. Even in the extreme perversion of authority, as in the tyranny of a totalitarian state, men are compelled despite themselves to preserve a remnant of God's order, and they can never consistently succeed in devilizing and ruining his world. And God says, I, who have the power of the whole world of space, should I not be able to encompass your little life, hear your questions and your groans, and unravel the tangled skein of your threats? Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this reminder from the book of Daniel that thou art a living God at work in the affairs of men, that we need not fear, even though tyranny stalks with terror through the earth, and men hide themselves for fear after the things coming on the face of the earth. Thou art in control of all, and he who walks with thee will overcome. He who obeys thee 
Not in the great and glorying moment, but in the quiet hour when no one looks. Is faithful to thee, shall end at last triumphant, overcomers, as Daniel did, stand in his place in the last days. We thank you for this promise. Help us to walk in the strength of it. In Christ's name, amen.